I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Sarah Garagosian from Schenectady, New York. She'll be reading poems from her new collection, Queer Fish, the winner of the Poetry Journal Book Prize, and discussing her interests in the relationship of our species to other species around the planet. Then I'll be taking a look at a publication I think you will enjoy called The Copper Canyon Reader. Stick around. Our featured poet today is Sarah Garagosian, a poet and critic living in Schenectady. She's the author of a recent collection, Queer Fish, winner of the Poetry Journal Book Prize from Dream Horse Press. She's also received a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Humanities and a grant to participate in the Breadloaf Orion Environmental Writers Conference. You'll find out how important that is when you hear her poems. So right now, I'm just really glad to welcome you uh, to Poetry Spoken Here. Thank you for having me, Charlie. Uh, I wanted to start, I mentioned where I'd like to start. You sent me some poems that you would like to read. And one of the poems is an interesting idea and I think an interesting accomplishment, which is the poem is from the perspective of a horseshoe crab. And I guess for start, I'd like to know more about that how you ever got to that, to writing that poem. And I guess we should start by telling people who maybe aren't familiar a little bit about horseshoe crabs. Certainly. So horseshoe crabs are crustaceans. Um, and I think what's fascinating to me about horseshoe crabs are that they are ancient life forms. They've been on the planet longer than we have. Um, and much of my book, Queer Fish Grapples with <clears throat> the environmental crisis. Um, and so in this poem, I'm taking on the persona of the horseshoe crab and imagining uh, what it is to live in a contaminated ocean, a poisoned ocean. How did you come to the horseshoe crab? I mean, lots of other, all the other creatures are living in the same contaminated ocean. Right. I mean, I, I think it's, it's interesting to me to think about um, really organisms that are, um, that are really ancient, um, that maybe are alien to us in some ways, right? Horseshoe crabs do not have a face. They're very different. They're very strange looking. Um, and so I, I see that as maybe a challenge. Uh, you know, what does it mean to empathize with a creature that is so alien? And, and for people who don't know, not only does it not have a face, I don't know, you're right. It kind of doesn't look like anything. It, it looks almost like a what? A half a basketball with a long tail? Right, yeah. Or, uh, it, right, it just seems like um, a creature with armor, you know? Yeah, everything's underneath that half dome shell. And you folks who don't get to the ocean, if you get to the ocean and you see something like this, which would be, how big are they typically? I mean, you know, when you see a full size one on the beach, I'm not. Right. Probably the size of my hands together. Yeah. 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 So, like about a foot across or more. Right. And then that, and then that long, straight, sharp tail, which is about another foot or so. That's right. Mm -hmm. Okay, if that didn't help you, folks, Google horseshoe crab and <laughs> take a look. Click on images and right. take a look. Well, well, let's hear the poem. This is sure. it's cool. When the horseshoe crab grieves, dying, I confide in starfish and lightning. The stones twittering distantly speak to me. 
The rain in our open graves is a temporary relief, and from underneath the echo chamber of my shell, I hear a soft moaning and dream of the new moon I cannot see. We speak of the flung togetherness of our lives, how the slapping tide can turn us like dice, and the fishnets frilled with carry-on strings bind us, translucent lobes of jellyfish, dangling crabs, and twisted cordage of seaweed. All of us know the swift feedback of pain, even the armored ones like me. Now the gulls that would knock all day against the steel pan of my carapace hesitate and watch from their priestly angle. We are all poison and poisoned, slick with oil and its rings of dark pearl. I wear a black veil of seaweed. Lies, those thieves of blood, do not know to stay away. Everywhere along the shore, we cry for love and the sweeping arms of a green sea. How, how did you get to, uh, you said the whole, the whole book, Queer Fish, is pretty much poems about animals. Yeah, it's, but, a, it's a bestiary. And um, how, how did you get to that? Was there a turning point, reading a certain book, being somewhere, and suddenly getting the idea? Or did you drift into this in your writing? Um, I've always been fascinated by animals, and I've always been fascinated by the politics of animal representation, right? What does it mean uh, to represent the animal? How do we accurately capture the animal? Of course, we ourselves are animals, um, but I'm curious about what it means to represent the animal sensorium. Um, how do we do justice to seeing and sensing the world in a way that is uh, different than uh, the human sensorium? I'm also uh, a big fan of poets like Marianne Moore and Elizabeth Bishop and Kay Ryan, um, all of whom um, have this really quirky and wild uh, zoological imagination. Um, and so they've been an influence as well. That's a good phrase, a zoological imagination. <laughs> now you said you, you started in Boston, so it's uh, did you get to the ocean a lot? Or, I did. Um, yeah, there was a time when I was okay. on the coast, and um, I spent a lot of time um, at the ocean. But I've always been fascinated by um, the deep sea, especially right, what it is um, that's below us, below um, uh, below our vision, uh, what we can see, and um, I think it. The deep sea provides an opportunity for imaginative projection. You're, you're thinking about way down there where the fish with no eyes and the ones that glow and that sort of thing. Is that, yeah. Is that what you mean by, yeah, okay. Exactly, those bioluminescent creatures deep below. Yeah, definitely room for imagination because there's still some things down there we don't know. We don't, we don't know they're there. Right. <laughs> or we assume they're there, but we have no idea what. All right. yeah, it's a frontier that's still being explored. Mm -hmm. I personally find it more interesting than outer space, but that's just me. I agree. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> well, what would you like to read next? Um, so I'll read the opening poem uh, from Queer Fish, uh, which is called To the Meerkat. Um, this is another kind of quirky animal persona poem. And, you know, when I was a grad student um, taking breaks from the workload, um, I would often watch this documentary called uh, Meerkat Manor. Um, and it's almost like a soap opera about meerkats. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but what's fascinating to me is that meerkats have their own culture, um, which is in some ways really sophisticated. Meerkats have um, designated roles. So there are some meerkats who act as sentries, others as caretakers. Um, and so I'm, I'm really interested in those um, animal cultures that um, undermine ideas of human exceptional, exceptionalism, right? Those animal cultures that are, you know, sophisticated. So this is um, to the meerkat. This wrapped bandit-eyed mother, scorpion diner, and foe to cobras is not a marauder, but rather the obverse, upright and slightly simian on her miniature mongoose legs. Love is like the sole lookout, the one who reconnoiters the desert to keep her clan unharmed. Dear Totem, she telegraphs her cry across the wasteland, if any slinking or winged thing nears, although her clamant alarm gives her away. Love swift and costly here, and she, banisher of loneliness, leans in close, dainty nose grazing ear to groom another's fur just so. And though the meerkats are the ones that stand up, right? And they, they're very slim when they do that. That's right. They're, With their little paws in front. Yeah, yeah. yeah you. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean that's my um, homage uh, to the meerkat, but also to the to the animal kingdom. I like the idea of thinking of of uh, going beyond human exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. you know, like like the documentary we saw that killer whales hunt cooperatively, things yeah. like that. Yeah, that's fascinating yeah. to me. Um, you know, I'm really fascinated by um, animals who do cooperate, um, who uh, use mutual aid to help each other, right? And live in these societies um, that, that function, right? And I think um, in a time when we are living in um, an age of crisis, of environmental crisis, I'm interested in uh, those animals that can teach us something about resilience and about cooperation. Um, and so, yeah, queer fish is really an homage to those animals. How do you, um, you teach, how do you, work, do you, do you uh, work this in with your students and how do you do that? Uh, I mean, you, you end up, I'll say sermonizing because I don't mind sermonizing, <laughs> you know, to them about these things or just bringing it up. And I know uh, these days a lot of people grow up pretty divorced from the natural world and right. almost anything you could tell them would be news. Mm -hmm. so. Right. I mean, I am. Um... I do teach a unit on environmental literature. Um, and I, I, I think it's true. We live in an age in which um, many people grow up divorced from the natural world around them. And for me, um, growing up as a kid, I spent a lot of time in the woods. Um, and I, I really do see, uh, you know, time in the environment as an opportunity to cultivate the imagination. So um, right now I am, developing a field course uh, for honor students um, at SUNY Albany. I'm hoping that uh, they'll have the opportunity to spend some time outdoors um, to record what they're seeing and feeling and hearing in the environment around them, um, and then to develop their own writing out of those experiences. Well, that's a great idea. Hmm. Oh, yeah, the whole class is a big field trip. Right. Not exactly. <laughs> but, but as right. much as you can do it, eh? And there's exactly. so many opportunities here in upstate New York and and nearby, like over here in Vermont. There's so many opportunities uh, to do that.
Super. How are they respond? How do they respond to the environmental unit? Again, as I was thinking, do they get into it or wonder, well, what's this weird lady talking about? <laughs> um, I think there is a bit of that. Uh, what is this weird lady teaching me? Um, <laughs> but I, I teach first year students. Um, and so many of them are fresh from high school. Um, what's exciting about teaching first years is that sometimes uh, I really see a transformation happening, right? Um, between the time when they're first initiated into college culture to the time that um, they finish the semester, um, you know, they're, they're being socialized to academic discourse, to an academic community, and sometimes um, that can be really profound for them. I, I did have um, a student in the past who told me that she's interested in becoming an environmental lawyer. Um, and I think uh, it was in part because of the readings we had done in our class. Mm. That's so rewarding. Yeah, mm -hmm, it is That's super. Yeah. Well, well, let's hear another poem. Sure. Um, so this is a poem from the manuscript that I'm working on right now called The Death Spiral. Um, and the death spiral <laughs> sounds really cheery, right? <laughs> um, it's actually um, a name for a courtship ritual uh, that takes place between eagles. Um, it's right. also called a cartwheel display. Uh, what they do is they lock talons, um, testing the fitness of their partner. Um, and they essentially um, spiral down the earth um, until risking death until uh, they determine when or if to let go. Um, and so this manuscript um, is in some ways a love letter, but it's also in part, a, I think, a, a death notice uh, to the earth and its creatures. Um, I, I didn't know that that was also uh, testing the mate for like um, quality or whatever you want to call it, evolutionary goodness, uh, goodness strength. Yeah, it yeah. is. Wow. Yeah. Right. So um, this is a poem called uh, Prognosis uh, Releasable. Um, I spent some time volunteering at my local Audubon, and I was so um, taken by just the generosity and um, the commitment of the the rehabilitators, the animal rehabilitators there, um, working for a nonprofit, and really devoting their whole lives to rehabilitating these animals. Um, so in this poem, I, I take on the persona of a raptor rehabilitator. Prognosis releasable, as told by a raptor rehabilitator. What is belief to a bird with the compass of the stars and skies? If the forests wilt as they will, and the stars and skies are all that are left, the raptors will last longest. I believe this, just as I believe the owl and its aviary will recover someday beneath an indifferent moon. We are not so different, both blinded in one eye, our pinions tied, we are ghosts to the day, prisoners perching in our cells by night. We know in our bones the calculus of the weight, the rubato of a hunt, but our recovery is slow. Still, I know someday you will go stooping again and a creature will freeze in your eyeshine. It will taste the razors of your talons and from its fretting and final sputter, you'll hollow out its heart, squeeze it in the parenthesis of your beak. Your reflexes will be a revelation to us. Kill with ease and be released. This is the test of your freedom. And there will be other tests. 
Someday your breeding range might be hijacked, slashed down or burned away. Someone might lease it to Liberty Trust, break grounds below the slippery elm, mistake your birthright for just a nook, phony up a house or office and call it a day. But agile bird, as long as you sleep here, as long as you breathe, your every wet inhalation is a defiance and every bone you crush in your beak is a victory. Don't break. Here in this holding place, I will feel out cold meat from the funk of a bucket. I will feed it to you by hand, whispering to you as soft as a rabbit's lap of your powers. Ghost, swift strike, eyes cut from onyx and blade, your hunger for a clean kill. I love the sounds in those last lines. Strike, cut, onyx, blade. Kind of reminds me of the kind of things Gary Snyder does sometimes. Yeah, Gary Snyder is incredible. Um, Turtle Island is one of my favorite books. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted um, those hard sounds there, um, hard consonant sounds, clean and kill. Yeah, they sound so good. <laughs> Thanks. Well, we, we spent quite a bit of time uh, paying attention to falconiforms. Uh, when my son was young, and so uh, he's one listener who's going to really enjoy this as he goes through and edits. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, having, then, having flashbacks as I am, like to meerkats, etc., and other <laughs> elements of, of the natural world. This is yeah. so great that you're doing this. Raptors are amazing. Um, one of my pipe dreams is to become a raptor rehabilitator someday, which is um, – you know, totally out of the question right now. I live in an apartment. I don't really have a yard. Um, but uh, there's something I think really compelling about the fierceness and the resilience of raptors, and especially owls. Um, I really grew to fall in love with the owls that I helped to care for at the Audubon. Haven't I haven't seen too many owls somehow. I haven't been where they are. I guess I haven't either. Actually, um, I've <laughs> never seen an owl in the wild. Um, even though I've looked, I've gone on owl prowls. <laughs> Um, yeah. but I haven't had any luck yet. Um, some some place we were that did a did nature walks and did night, you know, like evening nature walks, and occasionally there would be an owl, which of course was the big idea, mm -hmm. <laughs> or right. not goal exactly, but something you hoped would happen. Right. Should I read the, the next film? Yeah, the wasp nest. Sure. This I don't know much about. I don't. I don't get my my. I'm not as capable of imagining this as I am of the others, where I'm more familiar. Uh, mm -hmm. But imagining a wasp clutching you as in a klimt is rather interesting. Uh, that that yeah. really, I think, suggests you are seriously in into nature and the animals, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. if you can imagine it. <laughs> right. I mean, I. I um... Seen these wasp nests that are really intricate, um, really carefully made, um, and I—I I guess um, I wanted to kind of write a poem that um, was romantic and yet explored the creation of a wasp nest by the queen and the bees. Um, so this is called the wasp nest. I hear them in my dreams. Their wings beat at a frequency of sea and out of spittle, wood, and song, they make a cathedral of paper mache. It grows each hour, a gothic fruit below the sweet birch, while they writhe in a fever of toil, 
laying comb upon comb, feeding their larvae, fine-tuning their hive, sounding their pay into female industry through the streets. When I approach no intrude, it is not pain that I crave, but something close to it. Her, the queen of meticulous care and fierce motherhood, whose madness is formalized and made into a fortress. I would be a pincushion to her stinger, but instead she clutches me as an eclipse. Six little claws, six little legs. Pillars of wasps rise and fall away like gates when she comes. And when she coaxes me through, I will become her initiate, just as someday a hive of sleepers will pupate and rise for their, from their combs, such formal cells to form a new brood. There is venom here. I cannot forget it, but nothing reckless. There is pattern in her vision, in life, a future in every nurtured crevice. That kind of goes back to the beginning I, to, for me, because it's, again, it's something, though I think about nature, I, this is far from what I would think about. <laughs> <laughs> so you come up with, you know, like the horseshoe crab, it's like, whoa, you came out with a little niche of nature to write about. Which yeah. Is, I think, uh, you know, um, one of the things that uh, I'm trying to be more aware of in my new manuscript is uh, the ways in which, of course, um, nature is dangerous, right? Um, and, and yet, um, still, there's a part of me that romanticizes, um, or, you know, sees a romantic possibility in the nature around me. And that, I don't mean that uh, as though I'm trying to um, sentimentalize nature, right? But it, instead, um, I see it as an opportunity for imagination, right? What, what's actually going on in the wasp nest? Um, what are the relations like? Uh, and again, and these are animals, I'm sorry, insects that are so very different from us. But um, there is, uh, I think, something to admire in just the, the patience of um, their, their work and their creation. Have you developed any, um, anything you could articulate about how you are with yourself when you go into nature? in hopes of finding a poem? Mm -hmm. do, you, do you do anything particular? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely bring a notebook right. along. Okay, um, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so I, I, um, I used to live in the, in the Hudson Valley in Beacon, uh, New York, and um, it's a really beautiful area. There are lots of um, spots to hike, and a lot of, um, I would see a lot of uh, hawks on my, on my walks because uh, a lot of, hawk migrations take place over the, um, the Hudson. Um, and so there was always this opportunity, I think, for discovery in the natural world, but also, um, you know, there are these old industrial towns um, that you go through in the Hudson Valley, and sometimes you come upon ruins uh, in the middle of your hike, right, of um, what had once been a foundation of some kind. So um, it's interesting for me to imagine, you know, um, the the natural overtaking uh, the human creation and imagining the world um, before uh, the natural world had taken over. Um, it's really you know I'm, I'm fortunate to live I think in such an interesting um, environment. Yeah, the idea of if if you leave it alone for a while, nature will take over. Right. The man-made things will crumble. 
mm-hmm. or be covered up or or both. Right, right. Yeah. So the the interaction is can be a source of imagination too. I mean, a source of, a source of poetry, a source of ideas. Right. You never know, never know where it, the ideas are going to come from. Exactly, and I think that's important too to to think about the ways in which nature and culture interacts, and the ways in which they can inform one another. Not to think of nature as something separate from us, or um, to think of as, of culture as something outside of the realm of the natural. Um, because in fact, uh, as we see, like animals are capable of cooperation, of um, of having their own societies, of tool making, right? So um, I think part of my project is really thinking about the ways in which animals can inform um, and inspire uh, kind of new communities um, among ourselves. That's a nice thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing the poems and your ideas. Um, the world needs to hear more of these kind of messages, I personally believe. So uh, I'm Charlie Rossiter. You are listening to Poetry Spoken here. Our guest, Sarah Garagosian from Schenectady, New York. You're listening to Poetry Spoken here. We've just been visiting with Sarah Garagosian from Schenectady, New York. And I'd like to talk about a little poetry publication that I, I think you would enjoy. You know, it's around the end of the year when this is being posted, and that's the time when your mailbox just can't get enough of catalogs and catalogs. And if you're like me, there's a good chance you just throw them away without even looking at them, at least most of them. But there's one catalog that I get that really I'm always happy to see. That's from Copper Canyon Press. That's because their catalog not only promotes and informs about their new publications and their best-selling poets, but it includes sample poems. So essentially, you end up with a mini-anthology of maybe 30-plus poems by, of course, there are well-known poets like W.S. Merwin and Pablo Neruda, but other poets who uh, at least I am not familiar with. I'll read you a couple of sample poems just to... uh, let you see why I think so highly of this little publication. They call it the Copper Canyon Reader. They know what they're doing. There's a new book by Victoria Chang, and it's called Barbie Chang. In it, she explores racial prejudice, gender privilege, and the disillusionments of love, all through a reimagining of Barbie. Once Barbie Chang worked, once Barbie Chang worked on a street named Wall. Once she sprinkled her yard with timed water. Once she wore lanyards in large rooms in that all the chairs pointed in the direction of one speaker and a podium. Once she stood up at the end to leave, but everyone else stood up and began putting their hands together. And that started her always wanting something better. Victoria Chang, uh, once Barbie Chang worked. From the book, Barbie Chang. Another poet I didn't know, Michael McGriff. His book is called Early Hour, and it's inspired by German expressionists, uh, Karl Hoffer. Check this out. New Year. After four winters, winters, Rail service was returned to town. The wind paints new suicidal minutes 
on the face of the clock over the boathouse. The grass is defiant, wild, frost-brined, and reluctant to take any shape. It also carries the sound of the wind, which has just lain down in the grave of my hands. And one more I want to read. I I had to pause when I came to this because it's, it's my friend David Budbill who passed away recently. His last book called Tumbling Toward the End. He, he knew it was just about over. It's called Cleaning the Cellar by David Budbill. A few years ago, I was cleaning the cellar and back in a far corner. I found my old minnow trap that I hadn't seen in maybe 30 years. Inside the trap was a skeleton with a little hide attached of a mouse who had gotten into the trap and couldn't get out. The mouse was right near the entrance and clearly trying to get out when he finally died of starvation. How long was he in the trap trying to get out? How many days of slowly starving to death? All of his teeth were still in his skeleton head. His mouth was open in a scream. What haunts me more than anything is the look on his face. It was a human look. From David Budbill, Tumbling Toward the End. And that's just three of the poems in this neat little collection, which is a catalog from Copper Canyon Press called the Copper Canyon Reader. I'm sure you can contact them, and they'd be happy to send you a catalog because, well, you know, you just might want to buy a book or two after you read some of the wonderful poems in here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this has been Poetry Spoken Here. Be with us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.